friend of mine once went to the zoo and saw the sign, Beware the Llama Spits, and he was. It's one halfway through the sermon, you'll go, Ha! Ha! He was! Anyway, yeah. Or maybe later. Or you can check in afterwards. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that we would learn to be discerning. Please just to tell, help us to know what the signs are of truth and falsehood. Uh, and help us to know why it's so important and uh, what we should do uh, if we discover uh, the truth about someone. Amen. Well, I don't know if anyone's ever said to you, uh, you're judging me. You're judging me, aren't you? Uh, it's often said in response to a criticism that you've made to them about their views or their actions or because they know that you've caught them out, you've spotted some kind of inconsistency about them. Has anyone ever said that to you? You're judging me. Uh, maybe you thought of it or said it to someone else. They're judging me. Uh-huh. Uh, Alison's even said it to me a few times uh, when I <laughs> caught her doing something. She herself has made a vow not to do. I am not going to eat junk food again this week. What are those hot chips? <laughs> Sometimes I don't even need to say anything. She can just tell by my eyes and she says, you've got your judgy eyes on. <laughs> Anyone else have judgy eyes? Um, but people will often say, you're judging me to Christians to, as a way to stave off any criticism about their own spiritual views, their life choices, their morality. And it's meant as a put down. It's, it's something to put you in your place because uh, they'll say that because they make you think that you're, tr- you're acting superior and uh, in fact they're cutting you down to size and your view has no importance in my life. And we can feel the sting of that kind of rebuke. If someone says that to you, you're judging me, we can feel that. It hurts. Uh, none of us want to be thought of as judgmental. And I think it's particularly effective against Christians because we're acutely aware of Jesus' own words in Matthew 7 and verse 1. We just had in our reading, do not judge or you too will be judged. Uh, I think that's the one verse in the Bible that everyone outside of Christianity knows. <laughs> And in fact, it's become a catch cry of people who don't want to conform, who don't want to believe, and who want Jesus to back them up on one thing, and that's it, that you shouldn't judge me for it. And so that verse gets used as a kind of battering ram against believers to say, well, you mustn't say or even think or feel that I've done anything wrong. Uh, And are they right? I mean, isn't Jesus really saying something like, just live and let live. Is that what Jesus means? Uh, and so if you do judge someone, then you're being a hypocrite because you say you believe in Jesus, but he says don't judge. And so Christians can often feel like they're not allowed to have an opinion on anything, or if they do, they should never express it, especially if it's on spiritual matters or social ethics or any other thing that might possibly offend someone else who isn't a Christian. But the question I want to ask this morning, is that right? Does, does that trouble you at all? It does seem a bit strange when everyone else can have an opinion about us, but it's not allowed to be the case the other way around. It doesn't seem quite fair. And I think it's especially troubling when we come to a passage like today's one in 1 John chapter 4 that explicitly says, test the spirits, and then it goes on to condemn loads of people and warn us to watch out for the bad ones. It seems like John's making some pretty big judgments himself, and he's even telling us to be judges I mean, so what's the story? Uh, is 
Uh, is Jesus right or is John right? Or are they at odds? Uh, they mates, but are they saying the opposite thing? Should we judge or shouldn't we judge? And if they're not at odds and there is something we're supposed to make judgments on, what is it and how is it we're supposed to go about it? How would you know if you're making a right judgment? Now, in answer to the dilemma of whether we should judge or not, the answer is it really depends on what kind of judgment you're talking about. Because there's actually lots of different types of judgment, aren't there? Only one of which Jesus is particularly condemning. But there are plenty of other ways which God tells us that we all should, in fact, be making judgments. And you can even tell that from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7. Because what does he go on to say? He says, Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. I mean, what he's really saying is that if you're going to judge, then make sure you do it in a way that won't bring you under judgment by the same criteria that you're using on them. Okay? So what's the wrong way to judge? Well, Jesus explains. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye but pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I mean, you'd look pretty dumb walking around with this great honking log sticking out of your face, you know, trying to go up to Sue and say, there's really something there. I reckon I can help you with that, right? Uh, and she's gone, you're an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> She thinks that anyway. But anyway, uh, he says, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What is it that Jesus is condemning? He's condemning taking people to task for nitpicky little things that you see in them, especially when you won't address the serious issues in your own life. And that really is hypocrisy, isn't it? It's being the guy who always, who's always tut-tutting that you're going five kilometres over the speed limit, but they're having an affair with someone else's wife at the same time. Or being the woman who's always you know, picking people up on their dress sense and that really doesn't suit uh, when she's putting the family money down the pokies. Right? That's wrong. That's what Jesus is condemning. But what's the very next thing, the very next sentence that Jesus utters? Having just said, don't judge lest you be judged, and given this example of the guy with the log in his eye looking for sawdust, he then says, do not give to dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they'll trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. That's a pretty judgmental statement, isn't it? You've got to be able to spot, says Jesus, Who's a dog and who's a pig so that you don't waste the good stuff on them and so that they don't turn and get you? Very judgmental thing to say. And he gets even stronger a few sentences later in verse 15. He says, watch out for the false prophets. And then he goes on to condemn them with the strongest of words. So here is an act of judgment that Jesus definitely wants everyone to be able to make. A judgment about whether the people that you listen to and who shape your opinion about God and spiritual matters are telling you the truth or they're telling you lies. He's saying you've got to be discerning. You have to be discerning. You can be led astray and these issues of God and religion really do matter. They're not insignificant, which is exactly the same thing that John's speaking about in our passage in 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Or verse 6, the end of our passage, this is how we recognise the spirit of truth 
and the spirit of falsehood. We're absolutely to make judgments, particularly in the area of spiritual and religious teaching, to work out what's true and what's false. You have to be discerning. That's the kind of judgment that he's talking about, recognising who's telling the truth about God and who's distorting it. Being able to tell the God-given facts about reality from the man-made fantasies that people come up with. Picking what's fair dinkum from what's just a load of rubbish. See, it's not good enough that someone's promoted and recognised as a great spiritual leader or that they have the degrees from the right you know, Bible college or the right place or even that they're ordained as part of your own denomination or that they stand in the line of, of a great line of history and tradition or, or even that lots of other people are saying the same things. None of that guarantees that someone is not a false prophet and they're not going to lead you astray. Discernment is what we all need. And John says, actually, you can be a very discerning person. Uh, and he's teaching us how to be discerning. And we get, get to do that by applying some very simple tests that he gives us to do. He says, you don't have to be blind when it comes to spiritual matters. You can have your eyes wide open. And so whether you came here today as a strong believer who's already well-versed in the truths of Scripture, or you've come along as a friend, invited along, and you weren't really expecting, knowing what to expect today, or whether you've come as someone... Uh, to work out if Christianity, this Christianity business really does have anything going for it, the Apostle John is telling us that we need to be utterly discerning and that we should have clarity because not everyone who speaks the truth about God or claims to speak the truth about God and the truth about Jesus Christ actually is doing that. And he says there's a very good reason to have that kind of clarity. There's a reason to be discerning like that. There's a reason to test the Spirit's. And it's in the second half of verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The reason to test the spirits in the way that he's going to tell us to do is because there are so many people around peddling falsehood in the name of God. There are loads of them. John's not worried because... One in a million spiritual teachers might happen to get some little things wrong. Right? He's not worried about that. He's concerned and he's offering up this warning because there are many false teachers, many false prophets, and they'll appear as angels of light. They'll look really good. Uh, there'll be people who will be full of charisma and enthusiasm for what they're talking about. Some of them who will even be really lovely, even lovely to you. And they'll speak with eloquence but who will in the end not be leading you towards God, but away from him. And it matters so much because they'll do serious damage to you if you listen and follow, as they'll do serious damage to everyone who follows them. There's a common misconception that religious truth doesn't really matter in the end, that it's just all sort of the same thing, isn't it? It doesn't really matter which way you go, which spirituality. And so, and so what if people believe one thing over another thing? You know, if it makes them feel good about themselves and it gives them, you know, something to aim for in life, a bit of purpose, isn't that good for them? Well, no, it's not. It's not good because no one wants to be a sucker, do they? You don't want to be a sucker. It's not good because these false prophets often don't have good intentions and they really will do you harm in this life 
as they manipulate you out of money and try to control you. I mean, you think the extremes like, you know, uh, the Branch Davidians and David Koresh and the massacre in Waco, or for those who are old enough, the, uh, the Jonestown you know, mass suicide with Jim Jones. I mean, that's how bad it can get. But even things like the uh, Church of Scientology where you've got to pay $1,000 to get the answer to your problem. And then they'll tell you you've got another problem and you'll have to pay 2000 for that one. And then it's 10000 and then it's $100,000 to give you the next answer to the next problem, right? Which is why it's the religion of the rich and famous because they're the only ones who can afford to do it at the high levels, right? So you have your Tom Cruises and your John Travolta's. But it comes in Christian forms too. Jesus goes on in that other passage to say that false prophets that you should watch out for will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. What do wolves do? They prey on the helpless. They kill the sheep and the deer and they tear up their carcasses for dinner. That's why you've got to watch out. But the danger is, in fact, even worse than just physical and financial danger now, because as John says in our passage in 1 John 4, verse 3, that these false prophets are really tied up with someone else. They're tied up with the great enemy of God, Satan himself, or as John calls him, the Antichrist. And the end for such false prophets, as well as for those who are led astray by them, is the very same end that's reserved from the devil himself, and that is the fires of hell. False religion and false spirituality and even false versions of Christianity are anything but harmless. They are things that destroy lives now and in eternity. And John's warning that there are many such false prophets, and so we've got to be absolutely discerning and know how to test the spirits to see if they're from God or if they are, in fact, of the Antichrist. Okay, that's all well and good. So what's the test? How do you know? How do you be discerning? How do you pick a wolf in sheep's clothing from a true shepherd? Well, thankfully, John gives us some tests. He gives us three, in fact. Three tests to see whether someone's a teacher who comes in the name of God who really is from him or if they're a false prophet. Now, I do want to say that These aren't the only tests. You could pass all these three tests and still be a false prophet. But this is a pretty handy set. And that's because they're uh, necessary tests, but they're not sufficient. There are other things as well that the other parts of the Bible talk about. But, But let's just work through these things. How do you know if someone is truly from God or if they're a false prophet? Well, John says, test number one, what do they think of Jesus? Test number two, Who's listening to them? And test number three is, who are they listening to? Okay, so what do they think of Jesus? Uh, who's listening to them and who do they listen to? So we'll just work through them one at a time. Uh, the first test is what they think about Jesus. You see that in verse 2 of 1 John 4. He says, this is how you can recognise the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you've now, which you've heard is coming and is even now already in the world. How do you discern between a true and a false teacher 
of religion and spirituality. Well, it's in what they think about Jesus, and particularly, he says, whether they think Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, that might seem like a simple enough statement, but in just those few words, John has encapsulated whole realms of of Christian doctrine and woven them together from all over the Bible into a, into a short but profound little phrase. Uh, and, it, you know, it would take a treatise to unpack just what those six or seven words uh, kind of fully mean. But I just want to pick on the two biggest ideas uh, that, that come out of that first test. The first thing is that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, you know, it's all about Jesus Christ. That's not his surname. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Uh, Christ is a title. It's, it's the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah in the Old Testament, or in English, both Christ and Messiah translate as the anointed one, the one God sent. And, and the Christ or the Messiah was someone that the Old Testament prophets had predicted would come. They'd been predicting it for over a thousand years before Jesus showed up. Someone God would send who would be a superhuman leader who'd overthrow all of Israel's enemies and regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world. And he, and he would establish once and for all the perfect reign of God. The Christ is God's promised king and saviour. And so the first part of the first test is, to, is that they acknowledge that that's exactly who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But the second big idea is what uh, Christians sometimes call, because they like using big words, uh, the incarnation, the incarnation. Uh, carne in Spanish means? Means meat. There you go. He was, uh, he, he got meated. <laughs> he became flesh. Um, uh, it's the fact that uh, Jesus didn't just come into existence when he was born of human parents. That is, he was, he was God before even this world came into being. And yet in his love and concern for us, he decided that he would become one of us. He would take on flesh. He would become a human being. And that's what, why Christmas uh, is called Christmas and what it's all about. Because it's about the arrival on this earth of the Christ. God became a man. He arrived on earth as the son of the Virgin Mary. And uh, the reason he did it was to save us from our sins. And you've got to think about that for a bit, why that's necessary. Why did God have to become a human if he was going to help us? Well, sin is ultimately something that we do against God. It's, and so it's something that only God can forgive. If I do something mean to someone, if I, I don't know, if I stole Val's handbag, right, you better hang on to it afterwards, watch out, you know, kind of thing. Philip Challoner can't just come up to me and go, all forgiven, Joe, right? <laughs> Can he, right? Uh, Val's thinking, I want my handbag back. Uh, hadn't he better apologise to me? How can Philip say that, Joe, Joe you know, Val's the wounded party. In With sin, God's the wounded party. He's the victim, right? We've rebelled against him. And so only God can forgive because he's the one who's, who's been slighted. But sin is also something that only humanity should pay for because it's our human rejection of God that's brought his judgment upon us. It's man who should pay. 
And so in God's incredible wisdom and in his incredible love, Jesus came to us, truly God, which means he, he can forgive sins, it's up to him, and truly man, so that he can pay for sins because he's the human, true human paying for them. And every lie about Jesus diminishes one or other of those truths. Now, I reckon John probably had in mind uh, one of two early heresies that were doing the rounds in the churches uh, around that time and and just beyond. Uh, One of them was short-lived and it was called docetism. And the other one went for much longer. It was called Gnosticism. (coughs) Docetism is the easier one to understand. Um, Docetism taught that Jesus only appeared as a human but he was really just a spirit with no physical body, right? He looked like he was walking around. He looked like he was a ghost, right, walking around, not like the phantom, who's the ghost that walks, uh, because you could touch him and presumably the ghost eats and goes to the toilet. But uh, the kind of ghost that appears to be there, but if you went up to them, you'd swipe your hand through them, like in Ghostbusters. Um, And that the reason that uh, Jesus couldn't be material flesh was because God... Uh, God is so pure that he detests the material realm, uh, that the material world uh, is impure and wasting away and pathetic, uh, and so God wouldn't deign to uh, dirty himself by actually touching it. So he only seemed to be here. Uh, the word docao means uh, he appeared to or he seemed to be something. He appeared to be a human but he wasn't really because he'd become impure. Gnosticism, in a very complicated way, says something similar. But there's the equal and opposite error, which says that Jesus wasn't truly God, and I think this test also rules that out, that Jesus is just a man, that he didn't come from anywhere, uh, that he started his existence when he was born. That is, he was just a dude, a moral teacher or an inspired political leader, No, he was God become human. He was Christ come to save and to restore. He came from heaven to earth. But the test also rules out all sorts of other teaching as well. I'll just pick on one. It rules out the teaching of the modern ultra-skeptics who deny that Jesus really ever existed. Uh, And there's plenty of them around saying he's just a myth, he was all made up. The early church people got together and think, how can we control the world and how can we... Um, but it rules that out. If someone comes denying that Jesus is the Messiah, or if they're denying that he's God become man to save us, you can know for sure that that person is a false prophet. That's the first test. Does the person know and teach the truth about Jesus? The second test then is, who listens to them? Whose ears have they got? You see that in verses 4 and 5. He says, you, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. I think that's a word of confidence to say, you know what, if, you, if, you, if you've worked through the test, you won't necessarily be low strong. In fact, God will protect you. God's with you, right? Helping you to understand. And, and God's greater. He's going to win. But he says then, they are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and who listens to them? The world listens to them. They're just speaking what the world says and the world's listening going, yeah, that's right. Of course it is because it's the world speaking to each other. 
That is God's second test. It's how well received are they by the people of this world who really couldn't care less about God. If they're well-loved and well-liked and listened to and quoted in the newspapers and made out to be people uh, who are wonderful and insightful spiritual leaders who finally wisely come to agree with what society's always thought, well, you can be pretty sure they're false prophets. You know? And you think, well, who is it that the media laps up and goes, wow, he's, he's the kind of spiritual leader all those you know, Christians should really be like. You know, who, who are the ones that turn up and do the tour of the country and everyone just, wow, they're awesome. The Dalai Lama, right? Hanging on every word. The Pope, when he turns up, a quarter of Sydney you know, will try and turn up to see him and touch him. Um, John Shelby Spong, he hasn't been around for a while because he's very old now, um, but... You know, there's a media circus every time he turns up in town denying, you know, that Jesus is real and, you know, that it says anything about sexuality, in fact, that God's pro-gay and all the rest. You think about the recent debates about gender identity or about gay marriage or about euthanasia or, or the debates of yesteryear about abortion or any number of other things. Who are the spiritual leaders who are held up by the media as the wise and profound ones to be listened to? They're never the ones who say the hard thing. They're never the ones who say the opposite thing. They're never the ones that say the contrary thing. Like the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, people don't want to put up with hard truths that challenge them. They want teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. The world's got itchy ears. And it loves the kind of spiritual gurus who will tell them what they want to hear. But spiritual truth is not a popularity contest. Something is not true because loads of people like it and believe it. Right? That just means loads of people like that thing. It could be completely wrong. That is, Christianity is not true because two billion people say they adhere to it. Right? And Islam is not right because 1.6 billion people adhere to it, right? It, it's got nothing to do with numbers. You've got to, take, you've got to work out from the, these, these tests which one's true from what they're saying, right? What do they think about Jesus and who's listening to them, right? If it's the world who hate God, well, they're not speaking from God. Jesus himself said the road to heaven is narrow and hard, but the broad road's the one that leads to destruction. And so that's the second test. Who's applauding the person? Who's lapping up what they've got to say? If it's the world, then it's as likely as all get out that they're false prophets. The third test then is, who do they listen to? And that's in verse 6. He says, we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever's not from God does not listen to us. That's a pretty simple test. Do they agree with, do they adhere to, do they promote, do they rely on the teaching of Jesus' own apostles? Right? Peter and Paul and John and so on. Because they are the ones that Jesus sent into the world with his message. 
You know, they were his buddies for three years. He sent them out. And they are the men whose words make up the, the New Testament part of our Bibles. There's the words of the prophets before Jesus, which the Old Testament uh, uh, is, is made up of, looking forward to his coming, you know, the coming of God, the coming of the Messiah. And there's the words of Jesus' own apostles after he came declaring and confirming and explaining the significance of his coming, and, and particularly that we can be washed clean of our sins and we can be made right with our creator and not face his judgment if we'll just trust his son. And explaining what the new life looks like that's lived in him and, and lived for him, what it looks like. And so if someone will not listen to them as they speak in the Bible, they're not listening to God. And so the teacher who comes and says, well, I can see that the Bible says it's here, but we've moved on. Or actually we can ignore that now because, you know, oh, that bit's just cultural. Oh, it doesn't really mean it. The Bible conflicts with itself and so pick your favourite part of the, the conflict, you know, and just ignore the other bits. You know, they, they're not from God. They're lying to you and they're putting you in great danger. Never believe a guru because they tell you to believe them. Never believe a preacher just because they sound wise and learned or because they make you laugh and cry. Never believe me just because you like me. <laughs> Doesn't mean you shouldn't believe me. <laughs> You've got to test everything by the scriptures. I reckon uh, one thing you should build into your weekly routine is after you come to church, go home that, that day or the next day and read over what it is we've been looking at, in this case 1 John chapter 4, and say, is that right, what I heard today? Is that what God was saying? Is there three tests? Did Joe get it right? You know, maybe the, the passage was really saying there are no false prophets in the world, and so don't worry about it, you know, in which case I've lied to you. Never believe me just because you like me, and never believe Dave, even though he, he's very like me, <laughs> just because you like him. Believe him if he's speaking the truth of the Scriptures. Because these are the words of life. These are the words of God, written by God's own apostles and prophets about God's own son, Jesus, who came to die for us, who is the Christ, who has now conquered death and who now reigns as the king and who is coming back to judge the living and the dead and destroy his enemies and save his people. You've got to be discerning. You've got to judge the stuff that needs judging. You have to have your eyes wide open. Whether you're a Christian now or whether you're still searching, you've got to have your eyes wide open. Test the spirits. But what do you do if someone comes to you and says, you're judging me? What do you do then? Well, if you've been trying to pull sawdust out of their eye and you've got a plank in your own eye, I'd go to a wood workshop, right, and do something about that, right? Stop pulling sawdust out until you can see well. But if that's not the case, well, you could say to them something like, well, I was just trying to work out whether to give you some pearls or not. <laughs> or you could be more helpful and say, I am, but it's only because I love you and I want you to know the truth. And the road you're on is actually leading to destruction. 
and you need to come to Jesus, who is the Christ, who is God, come to save us. You need him. He loves you so much. Why don't you at least figure out if he's telling the truth, if that's who he really is. I'd love you to come to him too. Not because I want to condemn you, but because he is the only way to life. Father, these are challenging words. None of us uh, wants to think hard things or bad things about others, but you have warned us for a reason. You tell us that there are many false prophets and that just because someone is nice and sounds good, it doesn't mean they're from you. So help us to be discerning. Help us to know what to look for. Help us to know the truth. We thank you that Jesus is the Christ, that you have spoken, and that we can understand your words. And so, Father, we pray that we would cherish them and judge by them. In Jesus' name, amen.